Two weeks ago, I focused on the command to preserve the unity of the church. Today, I want to focus on being a servant of the church. It's a deliberate response to a dangerous and destructive tendency. The tendency of believers to walk away from the local congregation and to ironically do that in Jesus' name. Toward that end, I want to read some of Paul's closing words from his letter to the church in Rome. And then I won't reference those words again till I get near the end of my teaching. Now, I want to warn you, at first hearing, these words sound rather mundane, even irrelevant. But appearances can be deceiving. With that, here's our text, Romans 16, 1 and 2. I commend to you our sister Phoebe, who is a servant of the church, which is at Sencrie, that you receive her in the Lord in a manner worthy of the saints, and that you help her in whatever matter she may have need of you. For she herself has also been a helper of many and of myself as well. I've entitled today's teaching, A Servant of the Church. Please join your hearts with mine in prayer. Father, we thank you for the opportunity to lift our minds out of the muddy waters of media speak and immerse them in the eternal, unchanging word of our God. And that's what we want to do today. We want to hear from you. And we want to hear that which is true, eternal, and unchanging. Toward that end, Father, I pray that you would grant me a fresh equipping from the Holy Spirit for the ministry of the Word, and grant each of us a fresh equipping from the Spirit for the understanding and outworking of the Word in our life, and in the world. And as always, we pray these things for the honor of Christ and in his name. Amen and amen. And as we study God's word together today, may the Lord be with you. I recently watched a video on Facebook that was intended to promote a local church planting effort in the city of Pittsburgh. It opened with the founding pastor's testimony of how God spared his life, delivered him from a life of addiction, and called him to preach the gospel. And as I listened in my spirit, I said, Amen. Then he spoke of God's call to plant churches in the city of Pittsburgh. And again, in my spirit, I said, Amen. Then he enthusiastically declared that the congregations he's planting were, quote, not your grandma's church, end quote. And at that, my spirit said, depends on who your grandma is. If your grandma's part of a church that loves Jesus, then your church is precisely 
your grandma's church because there's only one church. You may dance more in your church than they do in grandma's church, especially since grandma had her hip replacement. Your preaching style may be more flamboyant and demonstrative. You may wear t-shirts instead of your Sunday best. And you may drink lattes in the worship center rather than generic coffee in the church basement. But the last time I checked, there's only one church. Now, I know that pastor, and I know he knows that truth. I suspect he was simply attempting to attract people who have had disappointing experiences in the church, people who have an aversion to the church. But I wish he would have chosen different words because people tend to hear what they want to hear. And growing numbers of Jesus' followers want to hear criticism of his church. And grandma-type comments only serve to fuel their misguided crusade. They also inspire pride in the hearts of contemporary Pharisees who thank God they aren't like other believers. But worse, grandma-type statements can be used to justify a movement that largely rejects the local congregation in favor of small, hand-picked groups that embrace a far less demanding church experience, and one that isn't true to Scripture. Let me explain. In American culture, it has become increasingly sexy to talk about ditching the institutional church namely, organized local congregations. It's become sexy to speak about starting a revolution of authentic Christ followers who live in authentic community, freed from the corrosive influence and the stifling restrictions of a local assembly. Their thinking is that it's better to get together with a few friends, a Bible, and your favorite microbrew than to sit among the clueless folks who inhabit the church pew. And to the self-assured, to the immature, to the undiscerning, to the biblically illiterate, it sounds authentic. It sounds like Jesus. After all, didn't Jesus reject the religious establishment? Didn't Jesus hang out with a small group of friends? Didn't Jesus help people? And Jesus didn't build any buildings. But you see, you can make Scripture say whatever you want Scripture to say if you cherry-pick your verses. But that's a dangerous thing to do, and here's why. To embrace Scripture where it aligns with your narrative, but ignore Scripture where it refutes your narrative, is demonic. Why would I use such a strong word? Because it's an accurate word. Because when you embrace the Scriptures that align with your narrative, and ignore the ones that do not, 
you're doing the same exact thing that Satan did in the garden. He quoted God's words where those words served his narrative. But he conveniently omitted God's words where they refuted his narrative. And we all know how that deeper experience, deeper spirituality liberation movement turned out. Remember, a partial truth is a whole lie. And the movement to ditch the local congregation is built and founded upon a partial truth. It uses the experience of Jesus' disciples during the three years that he was with them as a blueprint for the church. And that's a mistake because it overlooks an essential reality. Jesus' time with his disciples only laid the foundation for the church. The full expression of the church began after Pentecost, and it wasn't complete until it was shaped by the Spirit through the apostles and their inspired writings. And no less an authority than Jesus made that clear. He told his disciples, it's necessary for me to leave so that the Holy Spirit can take my place. And he went on to say, when the Holy Spirit takes my place, he will help you to remember everything I've taught you. And, 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 he will lead you into the rest of the truth. All the truth, including the truth about the church. And that truth isn't found in the statements or the teachings of Jesus. That truth is found in the ministry and the writings of the apostles. And those indicate that God's blueprint for the local church includes divinely called and spirit-verified leadership and structure. I want you to say those three words, leadership and structure. Again, leadership and structure. Scripture calls for a sacred hierarchy of servant leadership, and they're not contradictions in terms. See, one of the chief failings of the ditch the congregation movement is that those who participate in it forget that the church is not like the United States of America. The church is not a democracy. It is a benevolent monarchy. God establishes sacred hierarchies in his church, and they're meant to benefit everyone. Scripture says we are to submit to those who are over us in the Lord. And that means whether you like the concept or not, there are believers who are over you in the Lord. It doesn't mean that they're better than us, more spiritual 
than us. It simply means they are called to a sacred responsibility within God's hierarchy of service. And small gatherings of hand-picked people rarely, if ever, demonstrate that type of leadership. The sad truth is they're generally critical and suspicious of all leadership, except, of course, for their own. Scripture also indicates that those who are in leadership are to be honored with humility, not rejected with impunity. It says we're to follow their lead in a manner that makes their responsibility a joy rather than a burden, knowing that the work they do is on our behalf. It says God called some to be pastors and teachers. Some, not all. Not every wannabe. It places the oversight of a congregation with elders selected for their demonstrated maturity in all facets of life. It calls for deacons and benevolence. It calls for accountability, instruction, rebuke, and discipline, as well as grace and restoration. It calls for adequately prepared and proven leaders who know how to guard the gospel, teach the gospel, and call out any false teachers and teachings. It calls for accountability. It calls for settling disputes on biblical grounds. It calls for regular assembling, especially as we get closer to the coming of Christ. It calls for offerings. It calls for evangelism. It calls for missions. All that to say two things. Just as a steering wheel, two tires, and an engine don't constitute an automobile, Christian friends hanging together are not a complete expression of the church. They're a part of the church, but they are not a complete expression of the church. Jesus' letters to seven different local congregations in the book of Revelation hardly sound like they're addressed to a small group of friends sharing a couch and a brew. Second, God's blueprint for the church indicates that despite all of the suggestions to the contrary, organization, structure, isn't corruption. It's preparation. It lays the groundwork for greater impact. You see, some people mistakenly think that the opposite of organization is spirituality. And that's bogus. The opposite of organization is disorganization. And there's nothing spiritual about disorganization. God is a God of order who commands his church to do all things in order. If you want to have real impact on the world, and I hope you do, you'll never do it alone. At some point, you'll have to join with others. And that's where the local congregation comes in. At a place like ACAC, for example, several thousand men and women joined together can do far more to advance God's kingdom than a handful of believers, no matter how well intended, because size brings an economy of scale. 
it brings an exponential increase in what we're able to accomplish. In a church like this, we can support, staff, and sustain a wide variety of greatly needed ministries that literally touch thousands in our community and literally hundreds of thousands around the world. In contrast, the anti-congregation movement is prone to a romantic radicalism that's neither romantic or radical because it has minimal impact. Now, these folks talk of saving the church and changing the community and changing the world. But frankly, they don't change much of anything. They expect a small circle of friends in a highly selective and therefore biblically deficient community to drive out deeply entrenched spiritual strongholds simply by engaging in a few service projects and some well-publicized demonstrations, giving a few more dollars to the One Campaign or Habitat for Humanity, and posting judgmental rants against other less enlightened Christians on Facebook, as if Jesus said, by this will all men know that you are my disciples by the way that you call out one another on social media. In contrast to the dump the congregation movement, I would offer the woman described in our text, Phoebe. She's hardly a household name, but she valued the church. She served the church. Paul opened the 16th chapter by referring to her as a sister of the Roman believers, even though she wasn't a part of their little couch and brew gatherings, even though she didn't hang out with them, seeing how as she lived in Sencrie, a port town near the city of Corinth. Paul was staying there, and it was from there that he wrote his letter to the church in Rome. Now, back in that day, even in the Roman Empire, there was no postal service. If you wanted to send a letter, you had to find someone to deliver that letter. For that purpose, Paul regularly recruited trusted co-workers. Trusted because in addition to physically delivering the letters, they served as his representatives. They often read the letters and interpreted the contents to the recipients, answering their important questions. So you can see it involved much more than just dropping an envelope at the door. It was an assignment that demanded a long and dangerous journey, an assignment that could only be carried out with financial cost, an assignment that required spiritual maturity, and an assignment that required a servant's heart. 
and it also required a love for the local congregation. So when Paul had that important task and needed somebody to carry it out, he chose a woman that he referred to as a servant of the church and a helper of many. And I would like to suggest to you that those two things go hand in hand. Those who are servants of the church are usually helpers of many. In contrast, those who are perpetual critics of the church are almost always helpers of just a few. I'd like to suggest that when God has important assignments, like Paul, he calls selfless servants of the church, not self-assured critics of the church. He looks for a Phoebe. And that's good news because most of us will be Phoebes, not Apostle Paul. Perhaps the fact that God looks for servants explains why some Christians are increasingly disillusioned with the church. Now, they'll give you valid reasons for their disillusionment. The politicization of the church, spiritual compromise in the church, corrupt leadership in the church, but while those things characterize some, they do not characterize all. So I want to suggest something that I never saw before until this week as I was preparing. Perhaps those who are disillusioned with the church are disillusioned because they want to be extraordinary when they haven't yet learned to be ordinary. They want to be extraordinary when they haven't yet learned to be ordinary. They haven't learned how to be a part of the crowd. They haven't learned to value the imperfections of others as opportunities for growing in grace. And those two things imperfections and growing in grace always go hand in hand in the local congregation. Because believers are called to grow in grace, and it's hard to grow in grace if you avoid the need of it. If you just hang out with a few friends who align with you in politics, in economy, in ethnicity, and in your view of the church, you're not going to need a whole lot of grace. Grace is needed when you bump up against people who are very different than you, who don't accept your assumptions, who don't embrace your likes and dislikes, who don't live in lockstep with your dictates. The revolt against the local congregation always advertises itself as 
something more. But it is not. It is something less. It advertises itself as a return to New Testament faith. But yet, it omits most of the New Testament. You see, ultimately, it is simply a revolt against the authority of Jesus, dressed up in spiritual clothing. And it's a revolt against the Jesus whose name it uses as a club against those less enlightened believers who are hopelessly corrupt. It denigrates. It insults. It devalues the bride of Christ. And anything that assaults the bride of Christ didn't find its origin in the groom, Jesus himself. If you're going to model your experience of God's people after the experience of the disciples with Jesus during those three years, then I would encourage you be consistent. Go out on extended missions of preaching and healing, taking nothing with you, no food, no money, and not even a change of clothing. And where people reject you, shake the dust off of your feet. And then, after you've done that for a while, sell the clothing that you have so that you can buy a sword for the next time you go out. Because that's what you would have to do to be consistent with the experience of the disciples in every way. Now, you're saying, Pastor, Jesus didn't meant for... No, and Jesus didn't meant for you to abandon the church either. Those who embrace the ditch the local assembly thinking are like a newly engaged couple who think romance will preserve their marriage, while those who follow the blueprint of Scripture are like the couple celebrating their golden anniversary who have learned from experience it's not romance that preserves the marriage. It's the institution of marriage that preserves the romance. And it's the institution, the God-designed, Jesus-ordered, Spirit-revealed institution of the local church that constitutes an ongoing romance with God. Not everything that glitters is gold. Let's pray together. Gracious Heavenly Father, today my teaching has been in reaction to a teaching that I believe is dangerous. It follows the example of the early church. People who readily identified threats to sound teaching and movements that were not of God. 
Father, as our people, as our hearts are seduced by the call of no congregation Christianity, I pray that you would help us to be mature enough in our understanding to know that it's a call not to something more, but to something less. Help us to value the local congregation with all of its warts, knowing that we add our warts to the mix and knowing that it is God's blueprint for his body. And we pray that in Jesus' name. Amen and amen.